Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. Today is Wednesday, the 21st of the 4th. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been since Sunday? I've been fine, Gary, thank you. And I can only hope that the listener has also been that lifelessly fine. That's not very nice thing to wish on the poor listener. Okay, so Michael's level or above. We hope you're somewhere in there. You're the low bar. Always, Gary, always. Start with a nice little story that I'm still looking into so there might be a story up on gripped about this tomorrow there might not be uh it's basically about some of the law that we've just brought in i was having a look over it and i noticed something a little bit unusual about the new restrictions we brought in last week the ones that you know made going to mass a penal offense or a priest hearing confession outside a penal offense because you can't let priests go around the country having confessions with people outside, Michael. It would be anarchy. That way lies madness. No, we can't have that. So I've noticed this. I've given it to a couple of barristers and, and law professors, basically, to say, look, is my reader this right? And if it is, we'll probably publish tomorrow. What this is about is this is about a new statutory instrument. It's Statutory Instrument 171 of 2021. And it, well, here's the interesting thing. It, it lists all these restrictions. And these all refer to what they call specified events. So they're saying about events you can't go to, that it's illegal for you to go to. And here's the interesting line, Michael. In this regulation, specified event means an event other than A, a wedding reception, B, a sporting event, C, a training event, or D, a funeral. Now, what's interesting about that is this, Michael. This is meant to allow, you know, Things like funerals and weddings to go ahead. And then there's, of course, further restrictions on them in in different parts of the act that this amends. But what I noticed when I was reading it is it doesn't say wedding. So I looked at that and I sort of went, reception is an entirely different thing. Like, oftentimes, your wedding ceremony and your wedding reception can actually be quite far away from each other. They can also be, I mean, right next door, but they're very clearly distinct events. So I passed this to a couple of, of... barristers and i said look if these are the only events that are allowed under this provision does that mean that the government has presumably accidentally banned wedding ceremonies i went back and actually looked at the law that was amended that and that also specifies wedding reception so there are other in the law this amends which i think is um statutory instrument 168 off the top of my head I'll put a link to both of them in the in the podcast anyway, so if I'm wrong about that, you'll get the right one at the bottom of this anyway. That already has restrictions on um, wedding restre- uh, receptions and sets the size and things like that. But I, I think they have banned wedding um, ceremonies. There's a bit of a chicken and egg situation there. Well, if you can't have the wedding ceremony, can you get the wedding reception? <laughs> and what I'm really interested in here is that Assuming they're right, and the couple of barristers I've had respond to me so far have went, actually, yeah, we, th- we think you're right. Uh, I believe the phrase I got back from one of them was, this is presumably a mistake, but I would imagine it will nevertheless be a problem. Mm. So I, is it just religious wedding ceremonies that are banned? Can you go to a um, you know, municipal office and, and sign on or sign it there? I don't know. You can't just go in and sign a license or something. I mean, even if you're having a non-religious wedding, if you're having a civil service, civil wedding, there is a, there's a format. Um, 
I'm curious to know if they're, they're still going on. You wouldn't be able to obviously have them in hotels or something, but there are presumably places you can have them. You can have them outdoors, I suppose. But again, I, it's curious. Now, technically, Gary, maybe they're, they are aware of, you see, I don't know if this is true for other denominations or for other religions, but I know within the Catholic understanding, you don't actually need uh, a priest to perform a wedding because in a wedding, the bride and the groom marry each other. Technically speaking, the priest is there to provide an nuptial blessing and or to celebrate an nuptial mass. You'd have to have witnesses, though. I'm sure under the law, going back to the old days of Netemere, that you have to have witnesses to the thing. What I find particularly interesting about this is that under this this statutory instrument, if my read of it is right, and as I said, a couple of barristers have said it is, but we'll wait until more come back. Because for those who aren't used to dealing with barristers, you would work on the assumption that you'll get one opinion and it'll be the right opinion. That's not how this works. No. There are degrees of probability and, well, you get, you know, you get you get a good barrister and you get a, a bad judge. Yeah, maybe you can get this over the line. But what I found interesting is a person shall not attend a specified event. Now, specified event, Michael, means an event other than wedding reception, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so under this, under this... Uh, statutory instrument. If I'm reading it correctly, and I think I am, if you were to organize your wedding ceremony, that would be fine. But you could be arrested if you attended it. <laughs> so what you want to do is you want to attend the re- wedding ceremony quickly and get it out of the way, because the reception is fine. The reception is legal. But you're going to have to speed through the actual ceremony and just get it over the line, because at any point the police could be there. So it's quite, you know, do you? Yeah, sure. Do you? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, let's go. Now, this, for all that we joke about it, it's a, re- it, it, it's a religious ceremony. At the very least, they've accidentally banned the religious ceremony of marriage. The carrying out of, of religious rights is, is a constitutional right and widely regarded as a human right, one of the most basic human rights. Yes. The fact that they accidentally created a law which strips that away from people and didn't notice it Mm. does not bode well for me and as i said maybe i'm wrong about this but at least some barristers who've looked at it have said yeah that's that's a perfectly reasonable read of this we think you're right and that's not the kind of ambiguity you want if if assuming it isn't just absolutely correct at the very worst it's or at the very least it's ambiguity when you're dealing with a fundamental human right it seems like you might want to actually get your shit together if you read the regulation as written and that's what a law is supposed to be is the thing as written supposed you you expect a certain level of precision and clarity from the language well the 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 regulation as written says a wedding reception it does not say a wedding service and our wedding reception wedding reception that's it nothing else along with it (laughs) of course maybe you could have the wedding during a sporting event or a training event. Oh, well, then we'd have to go and look what the restrictions are about that. And, and that could be all over the place, Michael. It could be, could be literally anything. In the normal run of things, this strikes me as very funny because it's, to be honest, it's a hilarious fuck up to reintroduce the penal laws and then accidentally ban getting married. Like that is just on the face of it, a monumentous error. Like, let's just recap so far. Insofar as we have understanding of the, what the law is and there is clarity, and that's 
I would still say not huge clarity. Um, it has been made clear that it is not just an offence to go to Mass, it is an offence to leave your house to go to Mass. It is now, it's an offence for a priest to conduct confessions, not in the church, but outside the church. I think the thing is, he can technically organise the confession, he just can't go to it himself. <laughs> because then he's attending. It's almost like, Michael, one shouldn't, in the dead of night, hurriedly construct a law that appears nearly entirely a response to an ongoing legal issue without perhaps reading the law that you're putting forward in maybe a bit of detail. Because, you know, you may overreach and ban marriage. Well, you could say that, Gary. I think maybe just being picky, picky. It's all done in the best possible intentions, you know. It's all for the good of you, for you know, the public safety and for the protection of the people. Like, you know, there's the Robin Hood movie where the Sheriff of Nottingham gets angry and cancels Christmas. Yeah. That was at least deliberate. If he had accidentally cancelled Christmas, would that be better? I think that would actually be much worse. Because there were then questions like, how did you do that? Did you not think about what you were doing? Did you maybe ask someone else to read it before you banned Christmas? I think right now, the if the, if the people of this republic were given the choice between being run by bastards who are competent or just incompetence, we they'd go for the bastard who actually would cancel Christmas, but do it del- at least do it deliberately. Whereas at the moment we've just got people cancelling Christmas, and they go, oh, "What Christmas? Really? Oh, I didn't mean. Well, don't worry. We'll do another regulation tomorrow. It'll be okay." And in the normal run of events, this would be a really serious thing, as I said, because it's about a constitutional right, and also banning marriage is, you know, has got, I would say, wide-reaching societal consequences. Of course, maybe, maybe Gary actually is part of the great progressive conspiracy to undermine the nature of marriage. This is the end of the nuclear family, is it? This is the end of the. This is this is Engels. This is who who did this? This is Stephen Donnelly, isn't it? Who knew Stephen Donnelly's reading Engels? So, what, you you think this was Michal Martin's end game for Finnafar? <laughs> Destroy the nuclear family. <laughs> And with it, Fina Fall. Yeah. yeah. It was a suicide charge. Do you know what? That, suddenly, you you have actually clarified in my mind what Michal Martin is. Michal Martin is a sleeper. He's a Manchurian candidate. He's a Manchurian candidate. Years and years ago, a bunch of blue shirts got together and picked a child in Cork and formed him and trained him. Got him into the ogre and they put him in there and they got him elected. Because let's face it, Fine Gael were always very good at one thing, Gary, and that was getting Fianna Fáil elected. They couldn't be faulted on it. And they waited and they bided their time and they got him into Fianna Fáil. And then they turned the switch. They sent the coded message. And Fianna, and actually Michal Martin has spent the last 10 years basically just hollowing out Fianna Fáil in order to bury it. Suddenly it all makes sense. I'm happier when things make sense to me, Gary, than when that I just have to wade through the morass of confusion that is normally my life and the world as I see it around me. That makes me happy. Michal Martin is the Manchurian candidate. You can write about that in Gript. Prominent, prominent right-wing commentator says Michal Martin, Manchurian candidate. I am very interested to see how this plays with the working class demographic, Michael. <laughs> oh, I don't know. The wedding reception may be the most important part, but then again, you know, you like a wedding too. 
you want a reason to walk it you know have a train if you can't if you have a train on address you really need an aisle to walk up so otherwise it doesn't really doesn't really make sense no so i mean i bring it up because it's interesting and it's hilarious but i also bring it up because i don't think the law as written actually really matters in this instance the government is going to ignore it, even if we're correct that they've horribly bungled it. They're going to do what they did with churches previously, when they were saying it wasn't a penal provision. And if they were right about that, why did they just bring in this new statutory implement, making it a penal provision? Kind of kind of indicates they were bullshitting up to that point, doesn't it? You say, you say that, but what happens in this scenario like this? Mary Jo is marrying... Bobby, but Mary Jo had previously jilted guard Sean, whatever, who has still a burning and unrequited love. On hearing the plans for their upcoming nuptials and wedding, Sean arrives at the wedding and arrests everybody. And you know what, Gary? He has the right to because that's the law. And uh, a good, honest, decent, conscientious policeman who wants to stop a wedding will be able to stop a wedding. And they said, well, how can you do that? Said, because that's the law. I think it's a reasonable principle of a republic based on laws that, you know, you shouldn't have laws that you don't want, that you really, really think are bad ideas. You, 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 you just don't make them. You don't put them there on the basis that, ah, oh, well, it's all right, we'll just ignore it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we can all agree that allowing the government to simply massively screw up laws and then simply ignore the ones they don't like and sort of selectively enforce them is only a, is clearly a situation which will lead to the betterment of the country over the long term. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Safe beneath their watchful eyes, Michael. Yeah. Of course, they can't be that watchful if they miss this. Not horrendously watchful, no. No, no. Well, we should wait and see. Uh, I'm curious to see. Uh, I've been on, as you know, Tuka, uh, my pet law professor to see what he says and you have other feelers out there we'll see what what the morning brings uh, i have a feeling that i don't know how you can avoid it gary it is written as it is written it's written in pretty plain and simple language there doesn't seem to be a, a workaround in any other part of the of it no i mean i went through some of the the statutory instruments uh, statutory instruments it's meant to amend they mention wedding receptions as well but there's nothing there that would seem to override this, and with the definition given of uh, of events, it would seem clear that it falls down. However, with something like this, always best to get external advice, because you can just miss something that was mentioned somewhere and you just didn't realise, and suddenly you're wrong. But actually, from one bill to, the, the, to another, because I know, well, I presume listeners of the show love to hear listing of specific parts of bills, it's... To me, that just seems like riveting radio. It's poetry. Absolutely, particularly when they're they're read at length. That just that's that's what gets the people going, Michael. It's provocative. Yeah, what we're reading at length here. So this is actually a bill we brought up last week. It's the um, the hate crime bill. All right, jolly jolly stuff. Yes. When we were talking about it, we were saying it's bad, but it's not as bad as we thought it was going to be, and I think we may have slightly undersold. The primary issue with it, because at the time we were just, you know, this, this could have been monstrous and it's merely terrible. But the important thing to realise about this bill, if you are a member of the public and you're reading through it, the incitement to hatred charge. There are defences in this bill for the republication of things that might be deemed incitement to hatred. 
if they are of um if they contribute to the arts or literary uh, field politics academic discourse reporting those kind of things none of those defenses apply to the actual charge of incitement for hatred only the republication of material that might be classed as incitement for hatred you might say well what does that matter well what it matters is that if you are accused of incitement to hatred you cannot avail of the defense that what you were saying was a contribution to uh, let's say politics or to cultural understanding or to science or to anything of that nature there are no defenses listed in this bill that would limit the grounds on which you can be brought forward for incitement to hatred and remember that incitement to hatred in this bill is detestation significant ill will or hostility of a magnitude likely to lead to harm or unlawful discrimination Gary, can i ask you a question just for clarity because this is something that confuses me and other people are we in the bill are we essentially talking about two different two two things one is creating laws which make uh, hate speech or incitement to hatred illegal. And then there's another part of it which make, which is dealing with things which are already crimes, but if, but if they are based on uh, hatred for a protected class, now carry an aggravated tariff. Yes. Is, so, there, so there are two separate things. So it, it, it criminalizes speech in one way, so that creates a, a new, well, not a new crime, but it, it clarifies or it amplifies what was previously legislation. And then in another part, it says, and, and if you commit an, an like a, an assault or something, and you did that, and you were motivated to do that because of hatred, which we can demonstrate, then that will carry an average, and uh, that aggra- aggra- aggravation will lead to an increased penalty. Is that it? Yeah, that, that's effectively it. The bill is is tripartite in structure. There's one part which is incitement to hatred, which would be your your hate speech laws. Your second section would be what's it, it titles hate crimes, which are existing laws, which there is now uh, an aggravated version of with stiffer penalties. Right. And the third part it relates to uh, genocide. Okay. But that would be the um, the list of it. I I did just want to mention that after talking about it last week, because the really important part for the public is going to be that there are no defences for the person who initially communicates to the public. It just means that the material you send can be reported on or used for academic purposes or in scientific papers or for other purposes, and that is a defence against it. But you, having uttered it, have absolutely no defence. But if you are the the author of the speech, right... In the particular moment, whether it's a, and I say author, I don't mean player. I mean just Joe Bloggs on the street says something, right, which is reported as being an example of hate speech. Now, are, does the the defence of the probability, the balance of probability, still apply in that case? So it does, but only in relation to the sharing of material and if it was shared on social media. So for those who didn't listen to the last podcast, the bill reverses the burden of proof in relation to certain things, which is what the NGOs wanted. But it only does that, um, it, it does that and then limits it by saying, well, you can reverse that by showing on the balance of probability, which is 50 plus anything percent, mm-hmm. that 
you did not do these things. So the two things that it does that for are um, if you are publishing on on a public forum like Facebook or Twitter, one of the things they will assume is that you intended it to be distributed widely and to the public. Right. That you didn't think you were having a private discussion with someone. And that is a big difference. Um, and the other thing it is, is if you publish or republish material, they the court will assume that you knew what that material contained and that you understood what the material was. So the court will assume you knew that that material could be considered an incitement to hatred. So if you share something on social media, like an article, and you don't read it, and it's found to contain an incitement to hatred, or you share an image, or you share whatever, the court will assume you had read it, and you understood it, and that you were purposefully disseminating that to the widest audience possible. And you will have to convince it that 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 was not the case. It's worth pointing out here, as bad as this is, and I think it is pretty bad, the point Gary is making there about that, you, that it's for pub, for publication, not as part of a private discussion, it might sound like an arcane thing point. But in Scotland at the moment, the legislation is being seriously considered and being advocated by the, the Scottish Minister for Justice, that conversations held in your own home where somebody uh, said something which could be, which would be considered to be an infringement of the, the hate speech act would be considered would be criminalised. So conversation that that took place around your 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 kitchen table could actually be criminal. Now that seems to me that's a step so far. Uh, whether or not that actually gets through, so the SNP is basically a single party government in Scotland. So if they really really want to get it through, I suppose they probably can. There's a hell of a lot of opposition, as you can imagine, to it. But that's where we're, that's, that's, I suppose that's the concern, Gary, isn't it? I mean, these things never stop. No, but I, I do just want to be absolutely clear on this part of the bill. And what we probably should have brought it up the first time. This is important. On section one of it, because there is no defense where you can say that you are discussing scientific issues or culturally relevant issues or making a political point, the area where this will come into play immediately is the transgender issue. Because under this, significant ill will or host- hostility, harm or unlawful discrimination, with the gender recognition law we have, where you can change your gender by declaration, if you were to say to someone, you are not a woman, when they are legally recognised as a woman, and you say that because you take, let's say, a sex-based view of things, rather than a gender-based view of things. Gender critical, I think, is what they call it these days. I would say you you will absolutely trigger this. And there's no defense to that. You cannot say that that is a legitimate philosophical or ideological position. It was the norm for many years and is what I actually believe. There is no defense. That is precisely the kind of things that mad, crazy conspiracy theory right-wingers like you uh, were saying some years ago. Not that many years ago now, when various aspects of the law regarding that that issue were being discussed and they and there was one no that's nonsense that could never happen the idea that for example you could simply say um because of your understanding of the nature of human psychology physiology biology whatever a man cannot become a woman and therefore if somebody's recognized by the law you, you say i'm sorry i don't believe you are a woman you are not a woman 
that that you that would be a, that that could be criminalizing people. That's nonsense. And yet here we are. No, I mean this this section could be amended to put in things like a defense of honest opinion because you said something because you honestly believe it or you said it, but it's of it's a political issue or it's a cultural issue or in term in relation to the transgenders and think that is clearly a cultural debate about the nature of gender and sex. That kind of qualification would essentially gut the bill because while I think you could make a very fair, fair argument for that on the basis of transgender, you could essentially make the same argument about almost anything. Well, you can, but that is the problem. You want to bring in anything to regulate speech. And the punishment here, Michael, by the way, is on summary conviction, a class A fine or imprisonment for a term not exceeding 12 months or on conviction on indictment, a fine, which it doesn't class, but which is either unlimited or a class A fine and they just forgot to put it in, or imprisonment for a term not exceeding five years. This is a very heavy-handed bill that is very easy to trigger in certain areas. So if you don't, if you say, well, you put in the protections and you'd good it, and you're right, you would. But if you put in no protections and it's easy to trigger, also, personally, I don't think it is the job of the state to regulate societal conversations and societal debates about what society as a whole actually believes. This is very clearly uh, the state coming in and saying, well, they win, and if you disagree, well, enjoy prison. I think it's not just the role of the state. I think it's enormously dangerous for the state to get involved in this. In, a, in another discussion we were having recently, uh, we were talking about legislation which would seem on the face of it potentially to be a mandating a particular therapeutic approach or a particular clinical pathway to therapists in in Ireland. Now, I've talked to a couple of people in the profession, sort of fairly serious uh, heavyweight academics, who not mad to get involved in the issue, admittedly, but are all agreed, more than a couple, that it is very, very inappropriate for the state to get involved in that kind of discussion. You're not talking about settled science here. This is not flat earthism, if you like. This is not about whether or not water is wet. These are extremely discussed and divisive issues. And there's very, very far from being a scientific consensus on this. And even if there were a scientific, a general scientific consensus, that shouldn't be the point. I mean, it's a, it's an awful cliche at this stage, but advances in science have, t have tended to take place in the face of a consensus. When Galileo Galilei, on the back of not just his own work, but the work of people like Copernicus and others, started to talk about the you know, the nature that rather than the sun going around the, the earth, the earth where they're on the sun. This was in the face of a well-established uh, astronomy based on the Copernican system. And the, it's worth remembering, Gary, the Copernican system was very, very effective. It worked really well. They had worked out the mathematics and the orbits, the ellipses, so that it, they were very good at predicting eclipses and things and the, the movement of the the movement of heavenly bodies. They had done the math very nicely. It, the only problem was that within uh, and you don't, in a certain view of the, the way the universe is, they, they were just wrong. So Galileo Galilei gets it gets into trouble with the Inquisition and the Pope. No, partly. We won't get into the issue of how Galileo managed that, but it, you take my point. point it, it's, in the, it's in the face of substantial a consensus that these things move forward. You, you can't do that with, with science. You can't do that with medicine and say, 
the government is going to come in. These people aren't. These people aren't experts in how, what way is the right way to sit on the toilet, Gary. They're certainly not experts in these areas. That they that they can come in and mandate that this is what we are going to say, and they and we will not brook conversation about it. I mean, would J.K. Rowling be at danger? The comments that J.K. Rowling would Dawkins. I mean, the, would many of the prominent writers writing Irish newspapers today on the subject would they be exposed? to action under these this legislation on this bill as i said combined with our gender uh, recognition act and uh, its declarative nature if someone says they're a woman and has gone to the effort of doing that which doesn't require a lot of paperwork and there's no oversight of if you were to say they're not a woman i that could very clearly lead to discrimination against that person because they are recognized as a woman by the state and therefore they have all of those rights. We have seen in the United Kingdom examples of people who, and I think in case, accidentally were responsible for what is called dead naming. Dead naming is when you use somebody the, the name that somebody had previously when they had a previous, when they, with a previous gender identity. So if somebody's used to be David Doyle and then they became Denise Doyle and you call them David by accident or asleep or whatever reason, they ended up being arrested and held in the cells. I, I can also give you an example of this, a good example of this, Michael. I think last year I was talking to a Canadian um, women's shelter and they provided services to women who had been abused, uh, mostly in relationships. And there were many services they did. They, they did courses and things like that, but they also had a shelter where these people could stay. And it was run by a feminist group who did not allow people who had been born men to go into the shelter because they said this would be upsetting for the women who were there because they had been abused by men and this just wasn't going to go well. It would undermine the fundamental principle of the place that, this, this, that they should feel safe. Now, the response of that from the transgender activists was to go to the city's council and have the funding removed from the women's shelter for doing this. Yes. And then they also started breaking windows and nailing dead rats to the building. Because apparently, Michael, when you're a, a social justice activist, there's never a moment when you're breaking the windows of a women's shelter and nailing rats to the door that you go... You know, you have any doubt that you are the good person in this situation. Something there, if that were to happen in Ireland and this law was in place, immediately illegal. So there's no way it would not trigger this. But in circumstances like that, I mean, this is a group who were able to give a very fair and reasonable explanation for why they did not allow men, be they transgender or not, into the building because they saw them. I don't think they even saw them as a threat. They thought that the people who were there would not feel safe with them there and would perceive them as a threat. And that seems perfectly reasonable on the face of it, but would, under this, most likely be classed as incitement to hatred. This has happened in England as well, where there was a case of uh, women's shelters in the South Coast, where they were faced with the choice of either publicly, officially declaring that they would change their residency policies, or they would lose their funding. And in the case of, I think, at least one case, I think in Brighton, they, they felt the only choice they had was to, was to reject the funding, which meant, of course, the service they could offer was massively reduced. But they felt that the service that they would be offering otherwise would not be the service they wanted to provide 
for women who had been abused and their children. Now that was, the, and that was the choice they wanted that they made on the basis of what they felt was the the needs of the of the people they were helping, and I, I and I think it was perfectly reasonable position to take, and that's nothing to do with necess- some connection between an implication that transgender people are going to be somehow violent or are or problematic, but rather simply on the felt need of the people that they were protecting. They, they, they were the people they had the, their primary responsibility towards, and they had no choice but to reject the funding. This is the sort of thing where if you're creating a law and you look at what's happened in this area across the world, and you sort of go, this is a law which could be immediately used to jail a feminist activist for five years for running a uh, women's shelter for beaten women and sexually abused women that does not allow in transgender people. Yeah. And you would think at that point, you'd think, is that the result that will make society better? Is this advancing social justice? On the face of it, it's hard to see how it does. So I suppose we will, uh, we just wanted to, to go back to that because, as I said, when we were first talking about it, there was more of a sense of relief that it was not what the NGOs had wanted. And I don't think we, we adequately pointed out, it's still really bad. Moving on from that to to big news in America, it's good to get out of the country every now and then. Yeah. This is the trial, the, uh, the Chauvin trial, the George Floyd trial. I don't really want to talk too much about the trial itself because it was, as it was always going to be, an absolute circus. For those who haven't heard, Chauvin was found guilty of um, all charges against him. There are other officers who are still going forward. The thing about the Chauvin trial is, this is the verdict. We will see how long it stands for. Because I haven't really heard reported here some of the issues that arose during the trial. And they were pretty substantial. They, They should not have happened but there were three of them that I wanted to just bring up in particular. And what I think is going to happen here is, is Chauvin's people are going to immediately move for a mistrial. And if they can get a mistrial, this trial is never being repeated. He is just going to go free. I, and I think the judge has pretty well, if you'd say, has raised the white flag on that already. I mean, in racing parlance rather than in the surrender sense, that he has adverted already to... Uh, actions outside the courtroom which which have the potential to fundamentally undermine whatever verdict was coming out and in pretty pretty stark terms yeah so we had a a couple of things in relation to the comments michael was mentioning what that relates to is there's two of them one was there's a congresswoman called maxine waters well-known democratic congressman or congresswoman i suppose and she went out on the streets on monday and said, we've got to stay on the streets and we've got to get more active. We've got to get more confrontational. We've got to make sure that they know that we mean business. I know we're going to, I hope we're going to get a verdict that will say guilty, guilty, guilty. And if we don't, we cannot go away. Now, the immediate response of Chauvin's defense attorney was to motion for a mistrial, just straight out mistrial. The judge denied that and said that we have told the jury not to watch the news and we can only trust them to be doing that. However, he also said this, Congresswoman Waters may have given you something on appeal that may result in this whole trial being overturned. He said it was disrespectful to the rule of law 
and to the judicial branch. He called it abhorrent. And um, then he said, but no, we're not going to give the mistrial. So that's going to come forward immediately. Now, here's the second problem. If they get the mistrial, then Biden's comments are going to come into play. Biden, when the jury was sequestered, so when they should have been cut off from all news, but which I'm sure the defense team will argue that they still had access to news, Biden came out and said that he was praying for the right outcome, for a guilty outcome, a guilty verdict, and that in his mind, the evidence was overwhelming. So what you have there is the President of the United States coming out and saying he wanted a particular verdict. So if the defense can show in any way that the jury heard that or were made aware of that, the trial is done. And if the trial is overturned for this or any other reason, because of Biden's comments, it's going to be impossible to get a fair trial. We saw we saw the same thing with Mary Harney and Charlie Hockey. Remember that, Michael? He should be in prison. Oh, well, now he can't go to prison because you've said it. You said it. Yeah, you screwed the pooch. Just a couple of things, and then because there's there's a there's a third element here that we go on to that that I think completely poisons the possibility of a, of, of a retrial. Yeah, even if if they they wanted to get one, because the chances of impaneling an untainted jury if are almost zero at this stage because then the jury pool is completely tainted by other activities which we'll get on to in one second the first thing i was going back to Maxine. for okay she's just a congresswoman but she's a lawmaker she's a legislator and i am both of these statements i suppose the biden one even more so and i i'm not saying this rhetorically genuinely left me bereft of words at the time when I, I saw this, I thought, this is not what you do. Famously, the United States is, and describes itself as, a republic based on laws. The other thing that they constantly talked about in the United States, and from the very beginning, from the Federalist Papers, is that the United States has a separation of powers. And this is really important to the functioning of the republic and the functioning of the democracy is the separation of powers that a legislator would come out and comment about a trial demanding a particular verdict and saying if we don't get that verdict we're going to stay in the streets now you could interpret that gary if you're going to be very kind as that people were going to be on the streets they're going to protest and they're going to be vocal but anybody who's been looking at this, the United States for the last two years, and particularly in the context of what happened after the death of George Floyd, is that what people think that the outcome will be? Simply people peacefully protesting the outcome of this trial. Now, first of all, I'd say you can be disappointed by the outcome of a trial. But unless you have reason to believe that there was something fundamentally corrupt about the, main, the, the, the way the trial was conducted and or how the jury arrived at their deliberations, that there was something fundamentally flawed and wrong or corrupt about it, then you have no business protesting about it. That's the way the system works. The, the, the prosecution has a job. They have to, the deep, their, their prosec the, the prosecutor's office will bring charges and then they have to go into a court and convince the jury on that, on the on the on the that beyond a reasonable doubt, the person charged with these offences has committed these offences. 
And if you fail to do that, the person leaves, and in the language of the uh, of the great of all the law, legal laws you've ever read, they leave without a stain on their character. When you leave a court in our system, which is the United States and Britain, you leave innocent. If you are found not guilty, you are innocent. It's not a it, it's it's a binary system, and you don't protest courts because they give what you feel is the wrong answer. If you think there was something systemically or structurally or flawed with the system, well, then you go and you change that in the process so that it doesn't happen again. But that's the system. That's the law. That's to make that kind of statement. Also, the effect that that has potentially on a jury, you're, the, oh, yeah, we, we, we're going to, you better bring home you're going to, you bring home the right the right uh, verdict, or we're going to burn the gaff down. I would su I suggest to you, Gary, that that might have a certain bearing on how jurors who live in the in the play, in that particular gaff might decide to bring home a verdict. Then you have the president of the United States making a comment again on a trial before the result. We pray for a guilty verdict. What happens, Gary, if the verdict comes out not guilty? What does the President of the United States then say, having prayed for a guilty verdict, having decided the evidence was overwhelming, Chauvin is found not guilty. In the United States, under their system, like ours, he is an innocent man. What does the President of the United States say then? What, what, what authority? It's, the whole thing is just fucked up beyond belief. But then, Gary, on top of that, let's get on now. I think maybe you have some quotes or you can write them. There was a bizarre level of profiling of the jury, which got into social media. There was. I mean, the courtroom, like the, the court building itself was reinforced for this trial. There was security everywhere. The level of concern there was about violence against anyone involved with this was incredible. And then you started seeing profiles of the jury. Now, the jury are to be anonymous, because if they're not anonymous, in the best of times, they can be pressurized. Sure. Or they can become fearful that, be, that enough information has been released that they will be identified and they will be blamed for the verdict. Now, here's, here's a quote from one of the American newspapers about one of the jurors. Now, everyone would know roughly the area that these people live in because of where the trial is. There will be a catchment area around it. Juror number two is a white man in his 20s who works as a chemist. He has a combined degree in environmental studies and chemistry. He works in a lab where he tests samples for contaminants that may be harmful to the environment or worker hygiene. He enjoys outdoor activities, including ultimate frisbee, backpacking and biking. He has a fiancé. He worked for seven or eight summers at a camp through his childhood synagogue. You'd imagine a half-competent gumshoe would say, okay, right, he's a chemist, he's Jewish, he plays ultimate frisbee. So the chances are he's going to be in an ultimate frisbee league. So you get the... I mean, right sitting here, I, I'm already thinking, how would I f go about finding this guy? You know what? I'm sure if you, had a, if you, ha if you knew how to do these things... You could probably work out an algorithm to do a Facebook search on these people. You'd find them overnight. Here's another one. Jury number nine is a multiracial woman in her 20s who has type 1 diabetes. She grew up in northern Minnesota and has an uncle who is a police officer in that area. Even that on its own. Yes. 
once you know the rough area that these people are in, more than enough to identify these people. So I put it to you, I put this case to you. Okay, say, say there is a mistrial, right? And always remembering a mistrial is, is not a finding of, uh, of innocence or guilt. It's just saying that there has been a structural problem with the, nature, with the process of the trial and the trial is going to have to be conducted again. It's a, it's a, it's a nil-all draw, let's try it again. We now have to impanel a jury. Everybody around there is going to know. Oh, obviously, they're going to have heard Maxine Waters' statement. They're going to have heard the president's statement. And Gary, they're the two examples we've mentioned, the most egregious examples. But there have been many other similar statements that have been made publicly. But on top of that, you have this profiling of the jury. Now, you're sitting there and you're being paneled. You are now thinking, they're going to do that to me. That's going to be my lot, my future, and I, I don't, I'm not sure if I feel happy with that. Okay, here's here's just another profile, Michael. Juror number twenty-seven, black man in his thirties who immigrated to America more than fourteen years ago, which would probably indicate fifteen years ago. Right. He went to school in Nebraska, moved to Minnesota in two thousand and twelve. Manages eight people at his job in IT security and speaks multiple languages, including French. He is a fan of the Minnesota Gophers, loves the Vikings, has a wife and a dog, but no children. That, that's a basic Facebook search. Could pull someone up with that amount of information. He's a black man who immigrated, so the chances are, does it, first, like, the likelihood he's come from Africa. He speaks French, so the likelihood he comes from Francophone Africa. He came 15 years ago. He's married, but he has no children. Oh, I mean... This should this, and then you look for the man. Yeah, it, this is not going to Wife, be difficult. Dog, no children, even the sports teams he likes, and that's the sort of small information. Let's say you have four photos, and yeah. you're not sure which one it is, and one of them is, you know, got like a Viking symbol on his thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, good chance it's him. Yeah, and in this trial, this trial particularly, because it's become such a focus point of America. It just seems to be taking the piss. This was the time when all of these things should have been at their strongest. When there should have been you know, the utmost regard for the anonymity of the jury. No one should have said anything untoward. Even Biden saying something like, I pray for the right response. You stop then. You don't say the evidence is overwhelming. No. You can pray for justice. You can pray for the right verdict. You can pray for wisdom. But you, you, but I pray, I, I pray that they, they find the man guilty, and I found that the evidence was overwhelming. And and then saying, well, the the jury is sequestered, so it can't be an issue. There are already people putting forth the the idea that now we're just going to go to mistrial. That's all the defense team is going to do. They're going to appeal. They're going to look for a mistrial, and whatever about Waters' comments. The President of the United States coming out and saying the evidence is overwhelming means there's no chance of a fair trial. So if he gets, like, if they get the mistrial because of these comments, how, that, that doesn't serve justice for anyone. I'd also say, Gary, if they don't get a mistrial, that will fuel, I would say, reasonable suspicion that this trial was ultimately ma- was, was a political exercise and not quite a show trial. But not not exactly United States' best effort when it comes to def- defending the rights of the accused. Well, that said, I, there's no point really talking about 
the trial itself and what we think of the verdict itself. Because I don't think the verdict is going to stand for very long. I think there's a fairly high likelihood that they will get a mistrial based on this. And if that happens, he's just going to walk. And all people had to do was not talk about this the day before it was decided. To have the judge overseeing the case say that if officials want to give their opinions, they should do so in a manner consistent with their oath to the Constitution. Which is not him saying that Maxine Warher acted contrary to that oath, but it very heavily implies that that's the case. It's coming very, very close to it. It is is unusual for a judge uh, in a situation like that to come so close to saying this is a mistrial before it's when he's de- he was denying their application for it, but he was basically saying, lads, we've got this far, we're going to finish it. But when the result comes back, if it's the one we think it's going to come back again, because this is uh, what's happened here is egregious. The point, the point here, if you want to actually get the just outcome, none of this should have happened, whether it was the jury profiling or Biden's comments or Waters' comments, any of that. And that is the best outcome, that the jury is left alone to consider the issue and come to the best possible verdict. And you don't want it tainted, and you don't want any indication around it that anything could be astray, because it's an important case and it needs to be absolutely clean. And they fucked it sideways. I mean, I I will say this. I did enjoy seeing the speed at which city officials threw Chauvin under the bus. It was spectacular. <laughs> it was. It was spectacular. As you say, there's no point at this stage, or indeed probably at any stage, going through the minutia of how the, the trial was conducted. But it was, it was interesting. I mean, I dipped in and out of it, and I just thought that I thought the whole thing was interesting. But by God, you say throw him under the bus. It was almost like there was a series of buses just waiting to drive over the guy. We'll see what happens. If he can't make it, his sentencing, I think is within the next eight weeks. So we'll see what happens. And the American justice system moves pretty quickly on this and their penalties are very, very harsh. Yeah, especially yeah, yeah, especially police officers tend to... They, they have a, an extra responsibility and therefore there's an extra penalty. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Um, it's, it's not a good postcard from America, that's all I'd say. No, and I mean, by the time this show goes up, you'll have been able to figure out if there was rioting or not. Yeah. There was, um, there were reports, and they were unconfirmed, so I don't know if they were true, of some of the court buildings being evacuated before the, um, before the verdict was given down. Oh, in anticipation of the, of, of, of what might be happening, I, you know that we went from rioters to protesters? Well, now protesters have become marchers in, in a recent outbreak of outrage against the systemic something, 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 whatever, where goods were being liberated from local merchants. It was described by one of the media outlets as marchers engaged in certain activities. And I thought, well, there we go. Well, now we know, at least for the time being, it's soon it'll be... It'll, I don't know, it'll be interpretive dancers. We'll be looking at, it will go from being a riot to being a form of street theatre. All right, we will be back on Friday as per normal. Bye-bye. All the best.